of 2009, Heather and I, Heather, my wife, um, we uh, transitioned back to the States. We had been living in Germany for a number of years and uh, working with international middle school and high school students there um, with a mission organization and had a great time there. Our, our, our years there were some of the most precious um, that we've ever experienced, both individually but also as a married couple. And so the summer of 2009, that was a huge transition moment for us. We came back to the States. We were going to stay with our mission organization and, and uh, work with the international community there in the D.C. area. You can imagine how large of an international community that's there in the D.C. area. And so we had mixed feelings about coming back to the States because of our time in Germany, but we were really excited about what God had in store for us with D.C. and starting a brand new community there like we did in Germany. So that summer, we uh, took that time just to travel around across the country to visit our supporters, both churches and individuals. And um, one week, we were in Florida for a week of vacation with a family that we had met over in Germany. And uh, they were from the States here. And uh, they had a home in Florida and said, hey, why don't you come and spend a week with us? It's on the beach. Well, absolutely. So that was a great break from us from traveling and visiting supporters. The second day we were there, I get a phone call from a person and um, out of the clear blue. And um, the person said, hey, Scott, um, I want to talk to you about something that um, has just happened and wanted to see if you're interested. And uh, she went on to tell us that there was a young lady that she knew that was pregnant And um, she was due in about a month and a half, and she had made the decision that she wanted to give the baby up for adoption. And this lady immediately thought about Heather and I. And what's really interesting about this conversation and about this whole situation is Heather and I had really never up to this point sought out options for adoption. It just was not on our radar screen. For whatever reason at that time, we just did not have kids, and so we did not allow that to discourage us or to, you know, cause it to be a distraction for what we were doing with teenagers in Germany and and here in the States. And so the fact that this lady would reach out to me just out of nowhere and say, hey, here's a situation, God placed it upon my heart to reach out to you, are you interested? She went on to tell me more about this young lady who was pregnant. This young lady, um, she had already had several kids. And the last time, the previous time she got pregnant, she chose to get an abortion. And this time around, she's like, you know what? I know that I'm not able to care for this child myself based on my situation and my condition. I don't want to abort it. I want to give it up for adoption. And she was talking to this lady and she said, do you know of anybody that would be interested So that's the reason why this lady reached out to us, and and I'm just like, well, she's like, oh, by the way, here's some things. um, The mother doesn't know who the father is. It could be one of four different guys, Um, and um, there's a good chance that the baby is going to be born addicted to crack. Um, And so she's like, oh, and one more thing. I need your answer within 48 hours. So I put down the phone, 
uh, hung up, and uh, I'm just I'm sitting there. I'm just like, what what's going on? We're here in, in Florida. It's the ocean. It's beautiful. We're just this is this is tremendous. And then boom, I get this phone call out of nowhere again. I, and I'm going to say this several times this morning. I, we were not looking to adopt, not on our radar screen. And so I'm like, okay, now I have to go and try to communicate this conversation to Heather. What do I say? How do I say it? When do I say it? And um, so I waited that evening to tell her because I just wanted, I'm just trying to deal with it here. It's like, oh man, you know, I'm excited. It's like, what's going on here, God? You have my attention. And um, so that evening after dinner, Heather and I, we went down on the beach and uh, we were just walking and um, she's like, so she's like, I know you had a phone call. What was that about? And so I, I, I told her what that phone call was about. And she's like, well, well, she's like, did you tell this lady about adoption? I mean, where, where is this coming from? Her response, the same as mine. And, uh, I told her, I look, I, I don't know this, but this is, we have 48 hours. What, what say you? And so we, we, she, she's, she ex- responded with a smile on her face. Um, throughout our marriage, if you would have asked Heather at that time, so Heather, do you want kids? Her response always across the board was, whatever the Lord wants. That's Heather's response about a lot of stuff. And it's a genuine response. It's not one of those Sunday school answers that you know that's what you're supposed to say as a Christian, but that's what she really meant. Whatever the Lord wants. If he wants us to have kids, awesome. If he doesn't, okay too. Um, And she's like, well, let's pray. And I said, of course, yes. So we took 24 hours and we prayed and and just like, man, it's just like praying individually and, and praying together and um, we both reached out to our families. Heather's parents are godly, uh, godly parents, godly people. They love Jesus. Um, my parents, they love Jesus, godly people. And so we're like, you know what? Let's just, let's keep, let's just limit us telling them. Let's bring them on board. Let's have them pray. So we reached out to them. And of course, you can, you can imagine how they're responding. This would be their first grandchild. And, and they're all, oh my goodness, this is awesome. Where did this come from? And blah, 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 blah. And um, reminding us that, yes, indeed, they're going to be praying. So we're, we're, we're praying and we're just trying to track with God here. It's just like, what's going on? And then all of a sudden, all these other things creep in mind. Well, well we're getting ready to move in D.C. And we, I, I, we have nothing for a baby. Um, oh my goodness, I, I, I Thank goodness for the World Wide Web, because I'm doing all this research of what it takes to go into the whole adoption process, and then I'm realizing, oh my goodness, it's expensive. We're missionaries. How are we going to be able to afford the legal fees and all this stuff? Um, Again, just out of nowhere. So the end of that 48 hours, I, I call this lady back, and I said, I know that this does not make sense, but we're, we're on board. We're on board. I don't know what the Lord's going to do about this. I don't know how he's going to provide, but we're on board. Here we go. Jumping in the water head first. And so um, conversations with, with um, the lady continued over the next few weeks and finally had a chance to meet this young lady. 
and um, had a, a, a wonderful time. It wasn't a long moment, maybe a half hour, but she had questions for us. Obviously, we had questions for her, and the mediator is there and, and um, gets up and hugs us both. We thought that was a good sign. Um, and, um, you know, in the midst of learning about her story a little bit, it just caused Heather and I even more to just want to make a difference in this young lady's life, but also in this child that was going to be born in a matter of a few weeks. And um, so we left with that. In the meantime, two different legal teams some way, somehow found out about our situation, reached out to us and said, Scott, Heather, whatever fees you have, they're covered. And I'm just like, what? Coming in? It's all covered. And uh, we, we love you guys. Appreciate what you guys have been doing. And um, do not let the finances stress you out. I'm like, we, okay, thank you, God. You know, so we're tracking a great meeting with her. God's providing financially. At this point, we told our best friend. Heather told her friend. I told my friend, but that's all we told. And uh, and so everything is going great. And um, you know, the mediator says, "Hey, the the young lady really enjoyed meeting you guys." And and all systems go. She's like, when it comes time for her to have the baby, she has requested that we not be at the hospital. That once the baby is born and, and everything is, is considered okay medically, health-wise, then we will call you and we'll let you know when the baby's born. Then we'll call you back when you're ready to come get the baby. Okay, excellent. Again, God's just providing. Um, everything is just working out well. And we're just like, all right, Lord, you're, the doors are open. We're going through. It does not make sense. It just does not make sense. But we didn't ask for this, but we're going through. We're going through. We're going through. That uh, finally... We're back in D.C. now, about a month, month and a half later, and we get that phone call from a mediator. Okay, she just went into labor. We'll let you know when it's okay to, to come. We'll let you know how things go. Excellent. So we're, we're just, oh, my gosh. So we reach out to our parents, reach out to our best friend, and we're just like, oh, man, this is, this is really going to happen, you know. And, of course, a lot of other stuff happened along the way just to prepare us for this moment. And then um, that evening, I, I don't know really what we were thinking regarding hearing back from them as far as a specific time. But that evening, um, didn't hear back from anything. That evening, that night, nothing. We went to bed. Um, of course, Heather and I, we didn't sleep. We're just really stoked, really excited, and we're just praying. And um, um, The afternoon, the next day, we get that phone call from the mediator and says she went on to tell us that the lady, the woman, the young lady, had changed her mind last minute. And they believe that as a result of her just holding her daughter, that she was not able to go through. The lady went into the hospital with no car seat, no baby clothes, nothing. She looked at her mom and said, Mom, find me a car seat. I'm taking my daughter home. It did not make sense. We never pursued adoption. We didn't look for it. They found us. 
God provided, at least I thought he did, all the money, all the legal fees, not an issue. We didn't ask for the adoption. We prayed and prayed. We had godly people praying. And just like that, there went our daughter. At least that was my attitude. Remember when I told you that Heather's response always when asked about a kid if she wanted a baby was whatever the Lord wants? She meant that. But when I told her what happened, I saw what she really wanted. She sobbed. I saw a mother's heart. And we hadn't even met this baby. And so I really don't, a lot of that after that, the last few hours was a, it's, it's still cloudy to this day. That was nine years ago. And I just sat there and I'm just like, and I've been in ministry for a long time and I'm just sitting there and I'm like, are you got, you've got to be kidding God. <laughs> are you serious? You know our heart, you know what we were willing to do. You get our hopes up for this. And then <laughs> I just kept saying, are you kidding me? And I'm looking over at my wife. I'm like, all right, Scott, let's, let's be a husband. Let's protect. Let's provide. Put your stuff to the side and just go and be what she needs. And to this day, nine years later, I don't understand what all that was about. I don't have any answers. Until a few minutes ago, I've never talked about that situation. Needless to say, during that time, God disappointed me. It hurt. Bad. Still think about this girl. She would be nine years old in September. I pray for her. I pray for her mom. I hope that she's okay. I hope they're okay. Have, can any of you relate to being disappointed with God? And I hesitate to say that because we're at church and are, am I even allowed to say that? <laughs> that God disappointed me. I'm saying it today. And I've got to think without knowing your story that there have been moments in which God has disappointed you. You've been disappointed with God, that you've been hurt this morning, for the time that we have together, I want us to look at that. And there's five questions that I, wanna, I want you to ask yourself. And that first question is this. 
what was or is your disappointing with God moment. Maybe for some of you, there really has not been that disappointing moment. I hope so. I really do. But imagine for many of us, we can think back of at least a time. Maybe it was something that happened in the past. Maybe you are in that moment right now. The type of work that I have that I do in Leesburg, I'm sitting across and sitting with people on a daily basis. And they're telling me about their disappointments. They're telling me about how they have disappointed other people based on their actions. And it's really interesting to where, to when a person is able to verbalize that. And here's what I'm wondering today with some of you is that you have been dealing with a disappointment with God or you have been disappointed with God in the past and you've really never verbalized that. You've just kept it inside. And, and, and that's not working out too well for you. So maybe for some of you this morning, just simply writing what that disappointment out is could be a good first step with you in dealing with it. Lamentations chapter 3. It's going to be our main passage this morning. Um, Lamentations is known as the most sorrowful book in the Bible. Um, It's... A lot of scholars believe that Jeremiah wrote this book. Jeremiah had the nickname, The Weeping Prophet. You kind of see a trend with this book. Um, there's five, this book is made up of five individual poems. And we're going to look at that third poem this morning. Try to provide you a little context to what's going on in Lamentations chapter 3. The book of Jeremiah was all about prejudgment. God was about to judge Israel for their sin, sins. And Jeremiah, that book was all about God warning through Jeremiah of the coming judgment. Lamentations takes place post-judgment. Israel, the city of Jerusalem, the judgment has come. Lamentations chapter 3 gives us an eyewitness view of what's going on through the eyes of Jeremiah. Now, as we read this this morning, and some of you are, are you, you know your Bible, and you know that Lamentations, that judgment was based on sin, so it's really important for me to make this disclaimer right away this morning. The times in which you are disappointed with God, my situation, our situation with this failed adoption, I can honestly tell you that at that time in our lives, for Heather and I, there was not any sin in our life. We were good with God. And I want you to understand this morning, just because you go through disappointments with God or you go through struggles or devastation or loss, that that's because God is punishing you as a result of us reading Lamentations 3. And I want you to hear me clearly this morning. That is not what I'm saying at all. Lamentations 3, beginning in verse 1. And as I read this, I'm going to be reading from the NIV version. I want you to just, if you're just listening to me, I want you to 
listen for how many times Jeremiah says he has. When he's talking about he has, he's talking about God. In other words, this is what God has done. Lamentations 3, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to go all the way to verse 20. I, the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath, he has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out for, or cry out for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. Like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding, he dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. Verse 13, or verse 12, he drew his bow and made me the target of his arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughing stock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. Jeremiah, the messenger of God, sent to Israel by God. And this is Jeremiah taking a moment and airing his grievances to God. Verse 15, he has filled me with bitter herbs and sated me with gall. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I have hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wondering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Your disappointment with God could come in the form of the loss of a loved one. Just experiencing personal loss, period. Your disappointment with God moment could come in a way in which you were the victim of someone else's behavior. Your disappointment with God could maybe come through depression. Come through anxiety. To where you have battled with those things for the longest time. You have gone to counselors. You have taken medication. And nothing is working. You can't get out of bed in the morning. You can't take care of yourself. You can't take care of your family. And you're a Christian. And you believe that God is good. And you believe that God loves you. And you believe that God can take that away. Just like that. But he doesn't. What do you do with that? I was doing my internship in grad school with counseling. I was meeting with this young lady. She's 22 years old at the time. And uh, she grew up in a Christian home. She went to church, was involved in a really professional Christian youth group. And one of the reasons why she was seeking counseling was based on stuff that happened to her when she was a kid by her Christian father. And that behavior towards her continued when she was a teenager. 
And at the age of 22 at that time, she realizes the stuff that happened to her growing up is affecting her today as a young lady. And she sat with me and she would say, Scott, I went to church. I did the Christian thing. My dad would have family devotions with us. But yet this stuff happened. And people tell me that God loves me. And people tell me that God is all powerful. And people tell me that God is there to protect. Everybody but me. What do you say to that? I would just let her talk. Because let me tell you something. I didn't have... I can't sit there and say, hey, I understand what you're going through. I don't. But that was just another reminder to me of the hurt that people experience today. The second question that I want you to think about is, what was or is your response to that disappointment with God moment? If you've had a moment like that, if you are having a moment like that right now, how are you responding when that happens? What what, what do you do? What did you do? And as much as Lamentations 3 verses 1 through 20 tells us as far as what Jeremiah is experiencing, this blows me away. How he responds. First of all, he gets it out. That's good. I think that's healthy. How do I know that? You look at the book of Psalms. There are people sitting there, standing there, laying there, whatever they may be doing, whatever posture it is, and they are telling God what's going on, and they are questioning God. David, other psalmist. But this is how Jeremiah chooses to respond beginning in verse 21. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassion never fails. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope, whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Jeremiah is just sitting there and telling God about all this stuff that he's witnessing in Jerusalem and how this he is feeling about this and how he is being a laughing stock. Everybody's making fun of him and and no one wants to be with this guy right now because he is the bearer of good news and God has just basically just judged Israel, Jerusalem for all it's worth. And I don't understand how Jeremiah can turn around with the next verse. And says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. I read that and I'm just like, wow, Jeremiah. Super godly guy. Well, how can I respond to that? Because let me tell you something. How I responded nine years ago, I was mad. I was upset. I was hurt. I had conversations with God. 
And then I let God know how I was feeling. I let God know what I thought that he did to me. How could you hurt my beautiful wife? We've done nothing against you. How could you get our hopes up? And then, boom, it's gone. The song by Matt Redman, Blessed Be Your Name, obviously that's from Scripture. That chorus, it says, you give. And I can remember singing that song for a long, the longest time, and I'm smiling during the chorus, and I'm clapping, I'm raising my hands. You give, yeah, God, high five, and you take away, and all's good. And then this happens to me, and then I cannot sing that song the same way today. You give, high five, God, you're awesome. You, you take away. Your disappointing moment with God. How did you respond? How are you responding? Maybe it could be you blame him. You're angry with him. You don't trust him anymore. You've turned away from him. Maybe you are resentful. Maybe you have become bitter towards him. Disappointing moments with God can ruin a relationship with him if you allow it to. It can cause a person to say, you know what? If this is what type of God you are, thanks, but no thanks. Some of you, and I've talked to some of you, some of you have responded with those disappointments by allowing yourself to draw closer to God. Some of you, you've responded by just running to him and saying, God, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know why you did this but I still believe that you are God. (laughs) And I'm with you. Be patient with me. I'll catch up to you, but I'm with you. Oh, how I admire individuals with that. The third question that I want to ask really can help you with the second question that you answer. We we live not too far from Washington, D.C. Many of you have been there. And in D.C., what's known in D.C. are monuments. Lots of monuments. And so people go there. have the Lincoln Memorial behind me. You have um, the picture on the right is not in Washington, D.C. That's in North Carolina. But when you go to a memorial, you see it, and it gives you a chance to just remember that person. Remember what that person accomplished. Remember what that person was known for. Abraham Lincoln, my favorite president, my favorite historical figure. When you go to the Lincoln Memorial, you're going to see excerpts from the Gettysburg Address and from his second um, inauguration. Um, This was the same site that Dr. Martin Luther King did the I Have a Dream speech was right there in the shadows of the Lincoln Memorial. So when you go and see the Lincoln Memorial, it's a time for you just to remember and think back of all that that Abraham Lincoln had accomplished. That memorial is there to serve as a reminder. The guy on the right, his name is Payne Stewart. He's a golfer, was a golfer. Um, This statue is at Pinehurst in North Carolina. The reason why it's in Pinehurst is because in 1999, 
Payne Stewart won the U.S. Open. I enjoy golf. Payne Stewart's one of my favorite golfers. And so this statue to me is really special because when I see that, that is the same on the last hole of that tournament. The U.S. Open is known as a major. There's four majors in golf. That on the last hole, he made, had a 15-foot putt for par. If he misses it, he has to go into um, overtime or what they call in golf a playoff hole. He drains the 15-foot putt for par, and he wins the U.S. Open, and that was the pose that Payne Stewart had when he sank the putt. And in October of that same year, Payne Stewart died in a plane crash in Texas. Payne Stewart happened to have a personal relationship with Christ, so I'm looking forward to seeing him one day. But when he passed away, the people at Pinehurst said, look, we're going to set something up in place to remember Payne Stewart, to remember his life. And so when people go and look there and they take their pictures with him, that is a way for them to remember the life of Payne Stewart. That is a way for them to remember that crucial putt he made in the 1999 U.S. Open. That's what memorials do. That's what monuments do. There's a monument, a memorial that Job had asked the Israelites to put together. I mean, not Job, the person before Job, Joshua. Joshua chapter 3. Um, you don't need to turn to You can, obviously, if you want to. But this is, this is um, something just to think about as you are trying to figure out how to answer question number two. Um, in Joshua chapter 3, verse 14, it says this. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, they were getting ready to enter the promised land. But before they entered the promised land, they had to cross the Jordan River. So this is the setting there. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priest who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam. While the water flowing down the Sea of Arabah was completely cut off, so the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The people who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all, the Israel, while all of Israel passed in the middle of it. Kind of a remind you of another story similar to that in Exodus, crossing the Red Sea. And so they're getting ready to cross over the Jordan to get to the promised land. And this water is in front of them. And they're carrying this Ark of the Covenant. And boom, they go through and God parts the water. And so this is what, um, this is what Joshua says in verse 19. On the 10th day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, in the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up Jordan before you, before you entered and crossed over the river. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he has done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the people of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord. Question number three, what is your 12-stone memorial of God's faithfulness and provision? What I mean by that is the disappointment that you may have, that you may have experienced, that you're going through right now, is it possible for you to look back and remember a time in which God did provide? 
in which God was faithful? Is there a memorial that you can build from that moment to where in the future, if you are ever in a situation in which you are disappointed with God, you can look back at that memorial and say, I remember when God did this for me, or I remember when God was this for me. That's what Joshua had instructed the Israelites to do. We're going to take these 12 stones, one from each tribe, and we're going to build this monument, and we are going to remember this day. We have no idea what is in front of us. We don't know what our future consists of, but today we are going to remember what God did for us in crossing the Jordan, and when you grow up, when your kids grow up, I want you to tell them about these 12 stones. These 12 stones are going to be visible to us, and these 12 stones have a story of God's faithfulness. And how he took us into the promised land. Whatever your disappointment is right now, I want to encourage you to think back of a time in which God was faithful. I don't know how long your disappointment is going to last. I don't know how long your disappointment lasted. But the reason why Jeremiah was able to go from verses 21 to 26 after going from verses 1 to 20 is because Jeremiah remembered throughout his life the faithfulness of God and his goodness. And let me tell you something. That is what got me through nine years ago. Look, it still stings. It still hurts. I think that's okay. Along the way, though, I have God and what he's done in my life. There's been little monuments that I've been able to build and to say, okay, you're God. You know what you're doing. You do know what's best for me. Folks, I doubted that in the past. Last two questions. Doesn't necessarily have to do with you individually. But that fourth question is this. What disappointment with God moment is your family or friend currently going through? Maybe you've never experienced those disappointment moments. But I got to think that there are people in your life that have. And maybe you're able to identify a specific thing that your friend or family has gone through. In which it's causing them to question this whole God thing. Is he good? Is he powerful? Is he faithful? Does he really love me? And that fifth question. How are you responding to your family or friend's disappointment with God moment? When you find out that your friend is dealing with what they're dealing with, how have you responded? Do you kind of get really awkward and think, well, I really don't know what to say, so hands off? Or do you jump right in there and try to solve the problem right away? And do you say, hey, don't worry, it's just a phase? It's just a season. It's going to close. God, man, you just got to look to Jesus. And you know, we say that, and that's truth. Yes, we do. But in that particular moment, is that really what that person 
needs to hear. We see a tremendous example in the book of Job as far as how three of his friends responded. Let me just read this quickly. I know time is, is, is gone. Many of you know the story of Job. Job didn't ask for any of that stuff to happen to him. Matter of fact, Satan went to God and said, God, is it okay? You know your servant Job. Is it okay if I make his life difficult? And God says, sure, go for it. Just you can't kill him. Can you imagine God, that conversation going on about you? It's like, why? So the devastation happens to Job. In Job chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, it says, When Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Sophar, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize them. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. Listen to this. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. I love that. His best friends heard about what was going on with Job. And they got together and said, we got to go. Our friend needs us. And they see him from a distance and they can just tell this guy has been devastated. And they cry. And they go through the traditional mourning process of ripping their clothes. And they go and they just sit with Job for seven days. And they don't say a word. I think that that is one of the most beautiful things ever. Your friends and family that are dealing with what they're dealing with right now. Sometimes words, that's not what they need. They just need you to be present. If only it stopped in chapter two with his friends. You guys are laughing because some of you know the rest of the story. In Job chapter 16, verse two, just listen, you'll need to turn to it. And this is Job. He's replying to, I'm responding to Eliphaz. He says this. I have heard many things like these. Miserable Comforters, you are. They, they couldn't stay quiet. God even says something about them in Job 42, 7. After the Lord has said these things to Job, he replied to Eliphaz, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. We have our disappointments. We know people that are going through their disappointment. I want you to be mindful of that. I want you to be mindful of what your family or friends are going through. I want you to pray for them and try to understand from God, what is it that he wants me to do for them? What is it that he wants me to say? I think it's okay to be disappointed with God. What's not okay 
is when we continue to live in that resentment and that anger and that bitterness towards him to where it affects your personal relationship with him. I want to close out today with just playing a song on the screen, and maybe it's a song in which you've heard before. I, I love these lyrics. I wish this song was there nine years ago because that's where this song, this is where I was nine years ago. As you sit here this morning, as you listen to the words and you read the words on the screen, will you, will you just be mindful of what's going on in your life? Be mindful of your theology of God, who you see God, how you see God. Maybe you need to air out some stuff with him today. Maybe you need to write out your own psalm. I encourage you to do that. Great therapy, by the way. If you do that, as you're listening to this song, think about ways in which God maybe could use you to encourage a family member, a friend who is disappointed right now with God. They say sometimes you win some, sometimes you lose some. And right now, right now I'm losing bad. Stood on this stage night after night, reminding the broken it'll be alright. But right now, Oh, right now I just can't It's easy to sing when there's nothing to bring me down But what will I say when I'm held to the flame like I am right now Say it only takes a little faith to move a mountain. Well, good thing a little faith is all I have right now. God, when you choose to leave mountains unmovable, oh, give me the strength to be.
Listen, with your, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, if maybe God really has um, spoken to your heart today. And you're experiencing a situation and you just need prayer. I want you to do something. I want you to just raise your hand. Just look at me. Just say, hey, pray for me right now. I'll pray for you. Just look up here. I see you. Okay. Yep. Anybody else? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yep. Okay. Anybody else? Just say, pray for me. I need it right now. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Father, you know our hearts. You know our hurts. And your love is sure. God, these are your children. You are Father. We run to your side because we need you, Lord. Remind us, remind us right now of your steadfast love. Remind us of your mercy. That is new. It's new today. Remind us, Lord, of your commitment to us. Even when we aren't faithful, you are. Lord, be that comfort to your children, to your sons, to your daughters today. Lord Jesus, we thank you that when we were at our worst, you were at your best. While we were sinners and running from you, You took the road to the cross with your face forward towards Jerusalem. Luke says, you stretched out and went in that direction. Thank you, Lord, for that kind of grace and that kind of love. And then we rest in it today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.